The continent of Africa has often been placed on the sidelines of history, nestled in the margins of other powers and nations. And yet such misconceptions fail to recognize the important place Africa has had in global history. From Mali to Aksum, Africa is a continent with a plethora of connections to the wider world. The same can be said about the lands of the Eurasian steppe, a place known by many as an empty plain populated only by savage barbarians. This can't be further from the truth. Hi, I'm Edwin and I run the Nomads and Empires podcast. In my show, I cover the history of the Eurasian steppes. We'll talk about peoples like the Scythians, the Xiongnu, and so forth, shining a light on their lives, their beliefs, and history. We'll cut through the misconceptions and the Eurocentric perspectives. If this sounds interesting, then come join me on the Windy Plains of the Nomads and Empires podcast, available on virtually every podcast streaming service. And now, back to the history of Africa. The echoes of a single gunshot rang throughout the courtyard of Jasahene Opokomensa. Following a fiery speech denouncing the British occupation of Ashantiman and accosting the noblemen of the Ashanti for allowing it to happen, Ya Ashantewa had grabbed a rifle and fired a single shot in the air. While she had likely intended the shot as a mere rhetorical device, a staccato to punctuate her passionate oration, it symbolized much more. This was the first shot of the last Anglo-Ashanti war. With her convincing call to action delivered, Ya Ashantewa convinced even many of the moderate nobility who still yearned for peace that war was the last avenue left. In the past, the men of Ashanti had waged war with the impassioned intent to grow or maintain their empire. Now, that empire was long gone. Now, under the calls of a woman, they fought to maintain the Ashanti culture, traditions, and national dignity. Unlike the previous Anglo-Ashanti wars, this was no conflict between two powerful empires. The final war would be one between a global superpower and a ragtag coalition of Ashanti notables. However, if you believe these unequal odds will result in a one-sided rout, the complete destruction of the rebellious Ashanti and the ruthless suppression of their culture and civilization, prepare to be surprised. The coming war will ripple throughout the ages. It will permanently alter British colonial policy not only in Ghana, but around the world, and it will play a role in shaping the political landscape of Ghana that persists until this very day. Today, the Ashanti Empire will not end with a whimper, but with a bang, doing so to ensure that the Ashanti nation lived on, even if the empire demised. Hello everyone, and welcome to the Season 3 finale of the History of Africa podcast. I'm your host, Andy. Last episode, we examined the earliest days of British military occupation of Ashantiman and the attempts by the governor of the Gold Coast to formally integrate the country into the British Empire. His attempt to break Ashanti power through the attempted imposition of a puppet Ashantihene and the enactment of new, unpopular taxes did not win him any friends. He pushed the envelope a little too far, searching for the sacred civic artifact, the Golden Stool, believing that if he could possess the object, the Ashanti would have no choice but to accept his rule over their country. As we saw, this provoked a great deal of resentment among the Ashanti, who quickly consolidating under the impromptu leadership of a certain noblewoman from Ajisu, vowed to frustrate the governor's search by force. Season 3, Episode 30, The War of the Golden Stool Following the conclusion of the meeting at Apokomensa's estate, the atmosphere of Ashanti politics was finally one of unity. After prolonged debate, the faction in favor of armed resistance had won out. 
even Opokumensa, the de facto leader of Ashantiman in Prempa's absence, who was once a man who urged restraint and cooperation with the British, had too become convinced that armed resistance was the only viable way to preserve the Ashanti nation, and joined the calls for war. The night after, all but a scarce few men who had been present at the meeting gathered in the home of Opokumensa, where they pledged a special oath, known as Non Abasom, or Drinking to the Spirits. Opokumensa handed out cups of rum, and announced that all the people who drank from their cup that night would do all in their power to frustrate British rule. As the lips of the Omanhenes met their cups, the vow was sealed. At the end of the oath, a man emerged from the crowd and made a proclamation. This man was Asibe II, the Omanhene of Kokofo, and the closest living relative of Prempa. He announced, over great applause, that after the war's conclusion, he would protect the Golden Stool and act as regent until Prempa's return. There was no turning back now. With war on the horizon, the makeshift Ashanti Manchiamu now had an arguably more difficult task ahead of them, preparing for the oncoming conflict. Now, the Congress had to consider questions like, where were they going to get the men in arms to launch this rebellion? What was their strategy going to be? And, perhaps most pressing, who was going to actually lead their forces in the fight? During normal circumstances, Ashanti wars were led by the Contihene. Sometimes, in extraordinary circumstances when the Contihene needed to delegate a certain degree of authority to someone else, they would temporarily promote a prominent general to the position of Osahene, who basically acted in a role similar to that of a field marshal. But there lies the problem. It was the role of the Contihene to appoint this position, and, well, the Contihene was one of the men who had been exiled to the Seychelles along with Prempa. As a result, in 1900, the title of Osahene was, theoretically, an empty one, open for any charismatic person to take for themselves. And this is where the biggest historical controversy of this episode arises. Mainstream popular history, as in the stuff you might hear in a high school classroom or from your history buff friends, usually make the claim that Ya Ashantewa herself was universally heralded as the military leader of the War of the Golden Stool. In this most common retelling, Ashantewa was the singular, undisputed, widely recognized leader of the Ashanti military forces in the War of the Golden Stool. She played the principal leadership role in recruiting, organizing, and then leading the Ashanti army in the field as a general in 1900. This depiction of Ashantewa as a martial leader, the prototypical warrior woman, and the singular head of the War of the Golden Stool has become the enduring image of her in more casual historical memory. But, well, is it actually true? Well, I am far, far from the first person to ask this question. The debate over the role that the Ajisuhema played in the war has vexed many of the greatest scholars of Ghanaian history really ever since the event took place. And once you start actually digging into the primary sources from the era, it's not hard to see why. While pretty much every contemporary report from the time agrees that Ya Ashantewa was the main instigator and moral leader of the push to war at Apokomansa's council, events after that become much more blurry. Even in the accounts of people who are confirmed to have been physically present during the War of the Golden Stool, and especially among those who took part in the fighting, the reports of the role that Ashantewa played in the rebellion are never quite the same and sometimes even differ dramatically from other reliable testimonies. For example, one writer, I.K. Ajeman, claims that once a rebellion was organized, the role of Osahene was not fulfilled by Ashantewa at all, but rather by the Jasahene Apokomensa. This seems to conform better with pre-existing Ashanti traditions, since the position of Jasihene in the past has a long history of acting as Osahene during times of conflict. For example, 
Otto Beaufort had been Jasehene in 1875, and was given the role of Osahene to crush the Joaben Rebellion. The testimony of at least one man, an elderly Ansafohene recounting his involvement in the rebellion decades later, seems to confirm Apokomensa as the rebellion's leader, though with an interesting caveat. He is recorded as saying, There was no one leader in the absence of the Ashantahene and Kontihene. All the leaders had to take commands from each other, but it was Apokomensa who sent the messages to start the war, and all the Ashanti leaders were under him. So, there we have it. Ya'ashantewa may have played an important role in egging on the rebellion, but it was Opokomenza who actually led it. That was easy. Except, well, there are many more testimonies to go through. An elderly Omanhene, recorded in the same set of interviews, I might add, brought up an entirely different name as the primary leader of the rebellion. In fact, he claims that it was the Omanhene of a settlement called Achuema who acted as the de facto leader of the rebellion, Though he adds that, on the ground, most people listen to and obey the orders of their local leaders. In this last regard, he actually strongly implies something interesting, claiming that most Ashanti soldiers just listen to their particular Osahene. This seems to imply that, during the War of the Golden Stool, there, in fact, existed multiple influential leaders of the rebellion, not just one, who went by the title Osahene. To make matters even more confusing... Another reputable Ashanti elder in the same set of interviews goes on to throw all of this out. The Omanhene Kwajo Afodu, who was a teenager at the time of the war, claims that there was a singular military leader, but that it wasn't the Omanhene of Achima, nor was it Apokumensa, nor was it Ya Ashantewa, but a completely different dude altogether, a former army officer and Nsafohene named Akwasi Boaru. Boaru, he claims was the leader of the largest Ashanti force, and played the most significant role in coalescing the disparate Ashanti militias into something that resembled a united force. All of the lower generals respected Boaru and acquiesced to his orders, allowing for some degree of a coherent strategy, even for an organizationally disunited army. But, and this is where it gets interesting, he adds the detail that Boaru's elevation was entirely due to Ashantewa's endorsement and that many of the strategies and ideas that Boadu provided were, in reality, fed to him by Ashantewa. And, of course, there's also a large chunk of testimonies and written records alike that do actually conform to the mainstream narrative, outright stating that, yes, Ya Ashantewa herself led the rebellion, not only politically, but militarily as well. Even Kwajo Afodu would later say, Ya Ashantewa was the most important queen mother in Ashanti at the time, she was the true leader of the war, and the other leaders supported her. Now, when you have reports like these that contradict each other so heavily, it typically means that when you find commonalities between the otherwise distinct retelling, this shared detail is usually something we can accept as true with some level of confidence. Despite differing in every other way imaginable, all accounts of the Ashanti viewpoint of the war indicate that whoever the leader was, they were never truly in total control. Think about the statement where one of the veterans of the conflict said that everyone listened to their own Osahene. This statement, which the vast majority of other Ashanti testimonies of the war confirm, strongly suggests that the typical practice of having one or two leaders who sat at the highest point of a highly regimented and tiered system of officers was, by now, a thing of the past. And this does make sense. Those days of the Ashanti army being a neatly bureaucratized 
and highly organized fighting force had been over for a while, definitely since the deportation of Prempa, and probably since the days of Mensa Bonzel. The testimonies here seem to indicate that the command structure of the Ashanti during the War of the Golden Stool was largely non-existent and operated primarily in an ad hoc manner. It would follow that in a world like this, any man or woman in charge of a decent-sized militia could realistically claim to be the Osahene, the leader of the Ashanti forces, was not so much the supreme commander of the army as the most respected leader among equals. All of a sudden, the question of why we get such different answers about who led the War of the Golden Stool makes a lot more sense. The question isn't really asking who was the leader of the war as much as it's really asking who was the most important of the multiple militia leaders in the conflict. And, as you can see, it's a much more subjective and difficult question, right? So, okay, yeah, Ashantewa was certainly not the official leader of the Ashanti war effort, because, in reality, there really wasn't one, period. But this brings us to another question. Was Ya Ashantewa even a military leader at all? While all Ashanti accounts seem to agree to one extent or another that Ashantewa was maybe the most important political figure in motivating the Ashanti Manjiamu to go to war, there is actually a pretty substantial deal of disagreement on if Ya Ashantewa was even a military leader at all, much less the foremost and primary military leader of the Ashanti forces. But even if she wasn't a general or soldier in the literal sense, she certainly made sure her opinion was heard in terms of Ashanti strategy. According to Kwajo Afolu again, Ya Ashantewa derived her military influence entirely from the general who worked for her. He claims that Ashantewa rarely even left Ajuisu during the war, only briefly leaving her hometown to discuss strategy with another prominent war leader in the city of Kokofo, and that she never even came close to seeing a battlefield. He said, yeah, Ashantewa was at Ajuisu during the whole war. She might have gone to Kokofo because she was a military leader. She did not shoot herself, though she had her leader belt around her waistband and held an akrafena. Ashanti women do not fight in war. But is this account accurate? Well, parts of it, including her role as a more behind-the-scenes type of leader, seem to line up more with other accounts. But at least one part of her account, her never-leaving Ajuisu, is 100% patently false. There are countless confirmed and even written reports from British and Ashanti military forces alike, testimonies in court under oath, and dozens of other pieces of reliable evidence that place Ya Ashantewa in numerous different places throughout the conflict. Many Ashanti accounts claim that Ashantewa would often be seen near the front lines of battles, providing water that she claimed was blessed by the Abusom of War, Tano. She would then sprinkle this water onto men before they went onto the battlefield, providing them with good fortune. This depiction of Ya Ashantewa as being present on the battlefield in a supporting role is confirmed by written reports from the British officers, who, on numerous occasions, noted seeing Ashantewa herself hanging around battlefields in full officer's uniform, especially battlefields near her hometown of Ajuisu, but never actually firing a weapon or directly taking part in the fighting. This seems to gel well with the part of Afodo's retelling in which Ashantewa dresses in traditional Ashanti military garb, such as the wearing of a leather shirt and belt with ammunition pockets and the wielding of a sword, but that she never actually saw a battle. It also generally aligns quite well with the majority of reliable Ashanti testimonies, so I think we can accept it as truth. Finally, this gives me a chance to bring up one myth about the war that is pretty easy to bust. It is often claimed by less scrupulous accounts of the war that many of the Ashanti soldiers were themselves women. 
This is, by every contemporary account, a complete falsehood. Even allowing women to take a political role in warfare, like Ashantewa was doing, was extremely anathema to Ashanti customs, much less something like allowing women to actually take part in fighting. This isn't to say that women didn't see combat. There is more than enough evidence that women played an active role as porters, battlefield engineers, and other support roles during the war, and that many of them would even become victims of the fighting due to their close proximity. But female soldiers, we can confidently say definitely not. We'll be back after a quick break. How are University of Notre Dame faculty and students working to be a force for good in the world? Listen to Notre Dame stories to find out. Through expert interviews and captivating stories, listeners gain an inside perspective on the global and domestic challenges the university is working to solve. Subscribe to Notre Dame Stories wherever you get your podcasts. Not a single primary source from the time supports this idea, while many, like the earlier account from Afodu, actively refute it. If you want to see a West African colonial war in which the women actually serve as foot soldiers, you're going to have to look a little bit further east to the Franco-Dalmi Wars. Regardless, every serious historical account of the War of the Golden Stool agrees that women did not directly take part in the fighting as soldiers, and that the claims that they did are almost certainly later inventions by British tabloids. But they also agree that Ashanti women did play a major part in the role, both as key battlefield support and, in the case of Ashantewa, leadership. Okay, so with all that said, what can we say for sure about this war? Well, I think we can say for sure that Ya Ashantewa was not officially the leader of the Ashanti during the War of the Golden Stool. There was never, as many less scrupulous pop histories like to claim, a moment where the Ashanti assembled together and proclaimed that it would be Ashantewa who would lead the war effort. Regardless, she did seem to exercise a great degree of political and strategic control over the Ashanti war effort, particularly through her close ally and, at times, proxy, General Boado. Was she a warrior woman who issued commands and took part in the fighting on the battlefield? Or, in a literal sense, the woman who faced a cannon? Well, no. But is there enough evidence to definitively label her as one of the most important de facto leaders of the conflict? I'm leaning towards yes. And, to make her position more secure, a development would happen just on the eve of the war's launch that ensured one of Ashantewa's primary competitors for the position of political leader of the Ashanti forces would not be available during the fighting. Following the March 29th Ashante Manchiamu at Opokumensa's estate, the attendees returned to their homes to prepare for the coming war. Their goal was to mobilize as many militias as quickly as possible, so that by the time that the British realized what was going on, it would be too late, and they'd already be facing down a considerable Ashanti force. This plan hinged on the assumption that the British would have no prior knowledge of the Brewing Rebellion. But, well, secrets this big can't stay secret long. Nobody's quite sure how word of the meeting got out, but apparently it did. So, only four days after preparation began, the British made the first move. On April 3rd, 1900, colonial policemen raided the house of Apokumensa and arrested the Jasehene. Apokumensa and five other Omanhenes, including Asibe II, were led back to Komasi in chains and held as prisoners in Fort Komasi. With several of the rebellion's main political leaders under arrest, the rebellion was clearly doomed. 
In a matter of time, the British would obviously locate the other ringleaders, arrest them too, and end the war before it even began. But then they didn't. The imminent arrests never happened. You see, at least according to the internal memos from the British Colonial Office, the Gold Coast Colonial Government dramatically underestimated the seriousness of their situation. You see, Governor Hodgson seemed to be under the impression that any potential rebellions was in its very, very early stages. In the governor's mind, Apocomenso was still just beginning to recruit allies to a rebellion that, clearly, was entirely his doing. So, with their leader now a British prisoner, the other Ashanti elites who considered going to war with the British would clearly see the writing on the wall and slink back to living peacefully in their states, right? But by April, those Ashanti elites were not considering whether to rise up against the British. They had already pledged their support, and in most cases, were actively mobilizing militias. No, this war was not in the early planning stage when Apoko Mensa was arrested. It was in the, this is going to happen, whether Mensa is with us or not stage. If anything, all that the arrest did was show Ashantewa and the other Ashanti nobles that they needed to hasten their efforts, and launch this thing sooner rather than later. The arrest also played a role in vaulting Ya Ashantewa to the position of one of the de facto leaders of the Ashanti War. The arrest of Mensabonso, Asibe II, and several other important Ashanti elites, combined of course with the fact that many of the most prestigious Ashanti leaders had been exiled to the Seychelles alongside Prempa, left only Ashantewa and a few other contemporaries as the most prominent members of the Ashanti nobility left free. So, the very day after the arrest of Apoko Mensa, the militias of Ya Ashantewa and her allies prepared to attack. On the morning of April 4th, 1900, a young boy approached Fort Komasi and asked for Governor Hodgson, claiming that he knew the location of the Golden Stool. Now, this particular Ashanti boy had a history of messing with the British by doing exactly this. On two separate earlier occasions, this same little boy had contacted British officers by claiming that he knew where the Golden Stool was, before leading the officers on hours-long wild goose chases throughout the rural bush surrounding Kumasi. In fact, one of the officers who he had pulled this prank on before, a certain Captain Armitage, was with Governor Hodgson at the time. Armitage, of course, informed Hodgson of the boy's history, but Hodgson was not willing to ignore any potential lead to the Golden Stool, no matter how frivolous. So, Hodgson ordered Armitage to follow the lad's instructions. After three hours of northward marching in grueling heat and humidity, the boy announced that they had made it to the spot, a small family farmstead in the middle of a forested clearing. Armitage and his policemen kicked down the door and interrogated the family inside, going so far as to whip and torture several of the family's children to extract answers. But he found nothing. When confronted by an enraged Armitage, the boy coyly responded that he must have not remembered right, and it must have been a different farmstead where he heard about the stool. Now, it's not clear if the boy's misleading of Armitage was part of the Ashanti plan to isolate this group of colonial police, or if what happened next is a product of circumstance. As Armitage and his men began to prepare for the trek back to Komasi, they suddenly found the clearing's entrance guarded by several dozen armed Ashanti militiamen. Shocked by the sudden appearance of the militia, both sides awkwardly stared at each other for a moment, before Armitage, in classic British style, unfolded a tea table and beckoned the Ashanti to join him for a cup. This was not amusing to the Ashanti, who opened fire on Armitage and his policemen. The policemen, shocked by the unexpected appearance of an Ashanti militia, scrambled back to Fort Komasi, 
harassed by the pursuing Ashanti the entire way. By the time they made it back to the fort, six of the colonial police were wounded by Ashanti bullets during their retreat, and to most, these wounds would prove fatal. Armitage himself was hit in the leg. The skirmish against Armitage marked the true beginning of the War of the Golden Stool. The Ashanti armies rapidly mobilized throughout the city of Kumasi, and began attacking the British garrisons strewn throughout the city. The garrisons, overwhelmed by the Ashanti attack, retreated into the areas surrounding Fort Kumasi. Within only a few hours of the attack commencing, the British armed forces were almost entirely expunged from Ashantiman. With the exception of a small perimeter surrounding Fort Kumasi, all of the capital city was once again under Ashanti control. Most of the occupying garrisons had either been killed or retreated back to Cape Coast, while Governor Hodgson and a little under 200 men huddled together in Fort Kumasi. They were surrounded on all sides by thousands of Ashanti militiamen, and to make matters worse for the British, many of their soldiers had abandoned their weapons or failed to scuttle the small police armories littered throughout Ashantiman, giving the Ashanti access to great numbers of repeating rifles and even a few mortars. But despite this early success, the remaining British garrison at Fort Komasi would not be an easy zit for the Ashanti to pop. Despite their immense numerical disadvantage, Fort Komasi represented a nearly impregnable obstacle. The Ashanti forces outside possessed only a few captured mortar pieces, not that they would have done much good against the walls of the fort, which were designed specifically to be resilient against this kind of attack. The fort also contained the largest British armory north of the Pra meaning that the troops inside always possessed more than enough ammunition. An interior garden provided the soldiers with a small food supply, enough to extend their existing stores for quite some time. Finally, the fort contained a telegraph line back to Accra, which they used to send a message requesting reinforcements just before Ashanti soldiers cut the cable. The British in the fort readied to defend the walls. Many of the officers inside expected the Ashanti to throw themselves into the walls outside where the British could mow them down with machine guns. But they didn't. Rather, after the telegraph lines were cut, the Ashanti simply kept a perimeter around the fort, only occasionally and carefully entering the surrounding blocks to take the occasional snipe at the British defenders. Ashantewa and her general Boadu and other leading Ashanti knew that overcoming the defenses of Fort Komasi by assaulting the walls would be costly and risky. Since the reign of Osebonso, Ashanti military doctrine had generally discouraged this type of attack. Instead, the preferred strategy was to conduct a long, drawn-out siege, continually apply the minimum amount of pressure to keep the British expending their supplies, and meanwhile focus your own efforts on preventing supplies from reaching the fort by fighting off British offensives to resupply and reinforce the trapped garrison. The siege of Fort Komasi began. To facilitate the strategy of stopping the British from relieving the garrison at Fort Komasi, the Ashanti militaries began the construction of stockades at 21 strategically important points across the most important roads leading up to the city. These stockades were something unseen before in Ashantiman. Yes, Ashanti armies of the past had built fortifications during the Second and Third Anglo-Ashanti Wars, but these fortifications typically only consisted of either some dugout entrenchments, or the felling of trees into the middle of a path to form a makeshift barricade. The stockades of 1900, however, were a completely different story. I'm not exaggerating when I say the construction of these stockades is something of an engineering marvel. Standing between 6 to 8 feet tall, 6 feet thick across, and with the largest stockades stretching several kilometers in length, the defensive structures were a sight to behold. While their size was certainly impressive, the truly wondrous nature of these stockades engineering was the speed of their construction and their battlefield effectiveness. 
For starters, these kilometer-long stockades were mostly erected in just a couple days, with some of the largest projects taking closer to three weeks to complete. Given that, remember, some of these stockades stretched for miles, this speed of construction is very notable. On one of the key arterial roads to Kumasi, a section of stockade that stretched for six kilometers was erected in three days. Yes, without mechanical equipment, Ashanti militias built six-foot-tall, six-foot-thick stockades at the rate of two kilometers per day. Very impressive. Part of this speed can be attributed to the stockade's design. Each section of the stockade consisted of two walls of cut lumber, lashed together using rope or, in some cases, telegraph wires. These lashed walls were then placed parallel to each other, and the space within was filled with a combination of dirt, logs, and leaves, or anything else that the builders could find nearby before being topped off with a roof made of bamboo. The builders also allowed for hollowed-out rooms in the dirt-filled interior, allowing Ashanti soldiers to position themselves within the walls. Loopholes were also added to allow these soldiers inside to fire at oncoming attackers. To make the construction even more impressive, the barricades were also arranged into a tight zigzag pattern, meaning that, in reality, their true structural length was significantly longer than the already substantial length from start to finish. This zigzag shape, as well as their packing with soft materials like dirt and leaves, would contribute greatly to the effectiveness of these stockades on the battlefield. The zigzag pattern meant that when British soldiers tried to charge the stockades, they were met with gunfire from both of the stockade's protrusions. It also made it harder for the British to accurately focus their artillery fire on any particular part of the wall, and that a breach in one section of the stockade would not cause gravity to pull down a larger section of the fortification. The softer substances, like dirt and leaves located on the interior of the walls, also provided something of a cushion, allowing the stockade to weather even direct hits from explosive artillery. If the British simply tried to go around these stockades, they would have to weave their way through the dense forests that flanked the roads to Komasi, hope that they wouldn't get ambushed by Ashanti scouts, and even when they made it, they would find a series of more traditional defensive trenches waiting for them. These trenches were vulnerable to artillery, but highly effective against infantry attacks, and hey, will you look at that, they were located deeps in the forest, well off the road, where it was impossible to haul artillery. Brilliant. Beyond the stockades, the Ashanti set up camps. These camps essentially functioned as small cities. The barracks and buildings within the camps were built with reinforced roofs to protect against shelling, and contained beds made from bamboo and logs. Unusually for shanty campaigns, large numbers of civilians typically accompanied these camps. They featured marketplaces and drinking halls, which kept the soldiers entertained. The soldiers' families also frequented the camps, which kept their morale high. Food was plentiful, and often provided to soldiers free of cost by wealthy patrons, including Ya Ashantewa herself. Sanitation wasn't perfect, but Akpateshi, the 120-proof liquor drank by Ashanti peasants, was often used to disinfect shared surfaces and medical facilities. Compare this to the food-parched, unsanitary camps that Ashanti soldiers found themselves trapped in during the Third Anglo-Ashanti War. It's a world of difference. So, while the Ashanti were digging in for the coming battle, the British were caught completely unprepared. Governor Hodgson's desperate demand for reinforcements to Fort Kamasi fell on deaf ears. You see, London wasn't really in a position to send men to Ghana. The British Empire was fighting two other wars at the time a war against the Boers in South Africa, as well as a war in China. And, when it came to priorities, these two conflicts frankly rated much higher to the colonial office. 
Additionally, remember that the brief, so-called Fourth Anglo-Ashanti War, despite featuring no large-scale fighting, did take the lives of a fair number of British soldiers due to disease. So, the colonial office was apprehensive about the idea of sending soldiers to Ghana. This was especially true for white soldiers, because, remember, the British are still operating on the paradigm that skin tone makes you resistant to tropical disease. As a result, British forces in the war would look very different from the previous two conflicts. All of the previous wars between the British and Ashanti, especially the last two, the Third and Fourth Anglo-Ashanti War had featured mixed British armies, with a significant number of African and Caribbean forces fighting in separate companies alongside white British forces. Well, this conflict would be different. Apart from a handful of white officers, the British force in the War of the Golden Stool was composed almost entirely of Fanti, Hausa, Achem, and other African soldiers aligned with the British. With Governor Hodgson and many other British colonial military officers stuck in Fort Kumasi, command over the colony's police forces fell primarily to three men, Captains J.G.O. Applin, Harold Biss, and Charles Mellis. The men began to mobilize collections of locally stationed colonial police, as well as Ga Infanti volunteers, into something more resembling a coherent fighting force. Upon assessing and dividing up the available men and supplies, they took a train north from Accra to the town of Prasu, right on the frontier of Ashantiman. There, they patiently planned on how to penetrate the Ashanti defenses. But not all of the British were so cautious, nor were all of them located in the south. To make a very long story short, the area north of Ashantiman, the region including their former protectorates of Dagbon, Jaman, as well as several smaller independent kingdoms and city-states, had recently also been brought into the game of West African colonial politics. Sandwiched between the British, French, and Germans, this region was gradually carved up following the finalization of the French's defeat of Samori Touré, the last major African power in the region. Dagbon was split between the British and Germans, while Jaman was split between the British and French. However, one kingdom in the area continued to give the British trouble, the small city-state of Wa. The British tried to take the city-state by force in 1897, but were beat back by the local ruler in humiliating fashion. Fearing that the French would take the opportunity to snag the region from their influence, the British launched a second attack, this time with better supplies and bigger numbers. Wa was defeated and incorporated into the Northern Territories Protectorate in 1897, marking the last major resistance to British rule in the region. As a result of its recent incorporation, though, the British maintained a pretty sizable garrison in northern Ghana to secure their new possessions. This meant that three years later, when the War of the Golden Stool broke out, some of these British garrisons were still located in the Northern Territories. Now, this really complicated things. Because most of the British forces were located in the south, this is where the Ashanti had focused on constructing their fortification. As a result, they had been much slower to mobilize in the north, since they had assumed that the number of British forces up there wasn't really anything important. Well, turned out that a certain British officer named Captain Middlemist commanded a unit of House of Policemen in the Northern Territories. Now, it's not clear whether the Ashanti just weren't aware of the presence of this unit in the north, or if they figured it was too small a threat to warrant any response, or if someone had just made a mistake when planning the barricade constructions or what. But when Middlemist received a telegram informing him of the Ashanti's revolt, their recapture of Kumasi, and the British being trapped in the fort, he figured that he'd just casually rescue the governor. Middlemist and the 107 largely Hausa men he commanded just kinda marched towards Kumasi, 
And since nobody was there to stop him, he eventually reached the outskirts of the city without contest. Soon, he had entered Komasi and reached the fort without having fired a single shot. The news of this arrival excited Hodgson greatly. He believed that if this small northern army could so easily slip past the shanty lines without firing a shot, then the British in Fort Komasi could just as easily break out. Middlemiss tried to caution Hodgson against this idea, stating that he was only able to slip past the lines because the shanty hadn't expected anyone to come from the north. But Hodgson didn't listen. He ordered that a force of 150 men should coordinate a surprise attack on the Ashanti, catching them off guard and driving them out of Komasi. The attack commenced the next day, and Middlemiss hesitation was proven correct. At first, the British probing produced some limited success, retaking a missionary station and a few neighboring blocks. However, an Ashanti counterattack soon crashed down on the British and drove them back in devastating fashion. As the panicked force tried to retreat back into Fort Komasi, Middlemist himself was trapped in the gate as it closed and slowly crushed to death. Hodgson's failed breakout proved costly. More than half of the attack party had either been killed or mortally wounded. To make matters even worse, the Ashanti recaptured the areas surrounded Fort Komasi had driven several hundred missionaries, British bureaucrats, and collaborating Ashanti who had been hiding in the houses nearby into the fort. This meant that Fort Komasi was now occupied by several hundred more mouths to feed. Meanwhile, things outside Komasi looked equally promising for the Ashanti and grim for the British. At first, the offensive by Aplin, Biss, and Melis made some steady progress. Their armies had been allowed to enter Ashantimon unmolested by the king of Bekwai. The Bekwahene, a man who had opposed the war with the British from the start and refused to attend Apokumensa's summoning of the Ashantimon Hyamu, allowed the British forces to move freely throughout his territory. The colonial armies were well-equipped armed with several portable artillery pieces and machine guns. North of Bekwai, they encountered their first Ashanti stockade. At first, they tried bombarding the fortification with artillery and machine gun fire on April 29th. After several hours of non-stop bombardment, their artillery pieces were out of ammunition, the machine gun barrels were overheated, and the Ashanti stockade was as good as new. They then tried an aggressive infantry charge, sending their men straight at the face of the Ashanti barricade. This proved incredibly taxing on men and material, as well as entirely ineffective. After more failed and costly attacks on the 30th, the British withdrew back to Bekwai. Crucially, six British officers were either killed or wounded during the failed attack, as well as about a fifth of their army overall. In Fort Komasi, the situation was growing even more dire. Food stores were beginning to run low. The Ashanti outside also made clever use of psychological warfare. To prevent their enemies from getting any sleep, Ashanti patrols set up massive talking drums outside the fort, which they would passionately play at the loudest volume they could manage. To supplement their dwindling food supplies, Hodgson created several small raiding parties. These parties were ordered to venture outside the fort walls in order to find scraps of food in the surrounding neighborhoods. The raids proved successful in warding off food shortages, but were also costly in manpower since they were, in every case, driven back by devastating counterattacks. So, Hodgson was essentially trading soldiers for food. With the casualties from these raids mounting, many of the soldiers inside began to consider mutiny. They would attempt to band together in escape attempts, since being taken prisoner by the Ashanti was a better fate than getting sent on a suicidal raiding mission by Hodgson. Some of the Ashanti prisoners, including Opokumensa and Asibe, managed to escape from the distracted British and rejoin the Ashanti war effort. With desertions and casualties from raiding parties taking their toll, 
Hodgson began communicating with some of the Ashanti captives in the fort, demanding that they negotiate a truce with the Ashanti outside. On May 10th, a group of Ashanti hostages called to the besieging army, calling for a ceasefire in order to negotiate peace. The commander of the siege, General Boado, accepted, and peace talks began. The terms of peace were pretty straightforward. Prempa was to be returned, British administrators were to leave Ashantiman, domestic slavery was to be reinstated, and the British system of slave-like conscript labor would end. The terms that Buadu included in his peace officer are perhaps the best illustration of what the Ashanti actually wanted to gain from this war. It's worth noting that, despite the fact that this war is often characterized as a war for independence, nowhere in the proposed peace deal does Buadu actually demand that. Nowhere does he demand that the British protectorate status be abolished or that the Ashantahane regain his role as an independent arbiter of foreign policy. Rather, the demands are pretty simple. Prempa will come back to Ashantiman, and British administrators will leave. It's less a demand for independence in the geopolitical sense than it is a demand for what we would today label as autonomy. You Brits want to mark this territory as yours on maps? Sure, go ahead. But daily life in Ashantiman would not be governed by British bureaucrats. It must be the Ashantahane and his ministers who govern the daily lives of the Ashanti people. The terms presented to Hodgson were incredibly generous, especially considering the incredibly advantageous position of the Ashanti military at the time. Usually, when you see military successes like that of the level that the Ashanti experienced in April or May of 1900, you'd expect the demands of the advantage party to get steeper. But they hadn't. The demands presented to Hodgson were the same ones that had been presented to him months prior by Apokomensa and other Ashanti elites during peacetime. But in a shocking twist, Hodgson refused to sign. You see, and this might be the single most crucial mistake made in the entire war, Ashantewa and Bawadu had decided to lift the siege of Fort Komasi for the duration of the talks. They decreed that the food merchants that hung around the Ashanti camp were permitted to enter the fort and sell to the starving British. Perhaps they believed that, because the British were about to surrender anyways, it would be inhumane to allow innocent people to starve. Or maybe there were more cynical diplomatic considerations at play. After all, even if the Ashanti did win this war, allowing British garrisons to starve at the very moment that the treaty was negotiated would not be good for future Anglo-Ashanti relations. On the other hand, maybe it was the merchants who pushed for this decision, sensing an opportunity to make a quick buck off of a desperate base of customers. We don't have an exact written account of Boadu's thought process here, so it's mostly just speculation as to what his motives were. Regardless, it had a devastating effect on negotiations. By allowing the trapped British to receive food, the Ashanti were basically surrendering their primary piece of leverage. With the British garrison no longer starving, there was no longer any incentive for the British to accept Ashanti terms. The armistice finally came to an end on March 15th. That day, another small British force descended on Kumasi. Like Middlemist, this group was a part of a policing unit meant to occupy the recently subdued north. With the ceasefire still active, the Ashanti army allowed the men past the stockade. They brought much-needed supplies, including food, guns, manpower, and ammunition to the Fort Kumasi garrison. Now, this decision was likely a happy coincidence for Hodgson, as his private personal writings indicate that he too was shocked to see the surprise visit. However, this seemed a little bit too lucky to Ashantewa and Boado. They became understandably convinced that Hodgson's negotiations had been a ruse the whole time, a mere stalling tactic to allow for the restocking of his supplies. The duo angrily broke off the ceasefire, and the war began again on the night of the 15th. And for now... 
that's where we leave off. The British are trapped in their fortress, while the Ashanti sit ready to begin renewed attack to fight for the maintenance of their country and the continuation of their culture. But don't worry, you don't have to wait two weeks to find out what happens next. No, the second part of this final episode of the season is already available for you to listen to in the same place that you're listening to this one. So, go ahead and listen to part two, as the battle for Kumasi intensifies and the Ashanti score their greatest victory in decades, immediately before suffering their greatest defeat.